We all know that politicians employ a number of tricks and rhetorical devices to get elected. Many are willing to tell partial truths, outright lies, and pander to get our votes. Knowing this, how do we go about evaluating candidates and deciding who to vote for? We explore this question, among others, in this episode of Lawrence Talks. I am your host, David Tamez, and for this recording of our podcast, we present our first co-sponsored event with Lawrence Public Library. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, I know we're a small small crowd tonight, but we are going to use the mics. We are recording this evening's presentation, Um, so just be aware of that. And I just have a few housekeeping things I want to mention. Please do turn your cell phones to silent. Um, Restrooms, we've got a men's restroom to the direct right of these double doors, a women's restroom to the left, and a family restroom in our children's area. Um, We do have a hearing loop, so if you have a hearing aid, you can turn your uh, hearing aid to the T setting and all of the audio will be looped right into your hearing aid. And because of that, and because this is being recorded, when it comes to more of the audience discussion portion of the evening, I'm going to run this mic around to you, so please wait until I get uh, the mic to you to participate. Um, Emergency exits, the double doors you came in and out the front door. This back door, uh, take a hard right and go through the teen zone, and that uh, exit will lead you out through our reading garden. And then on that back information table, we have fall calendars so you can see everything that's going on um, through the month of November. I do have two events I want to mention real quickly. Um, On September 30th at 7 p.m. at Liberty Hall, we are hosting Rakim in conversation with local musician Sean Hunt, Um, and that's part of our 780s music series. So again, that is Monday, um, September 30th at 7 p.m. at Liberty Hall. And then on October 1st, we are going to be hosting Annalie Newitz. Uh, uh, They are a science fiction writer, and that's at 6 p.m. right here in our auditorium. They will be talking about their latest book, The Future of Another Timeline, with Gun Center graduate student and science fiction aficionado Desiree Nyans. And The Raven will be selling books at that, so you can come out and buy a book and get it signed. And now um, I'm going to hand things over to David Thomas, creator of Lawrence Talks and the whole reason we are here tonight. That there are a number of events going on and I appreciate uh, those of you who took your time out to be here um, to join us. Tonight's topic I think is appropriate for a number of reasons. Uh, On the one hand, it seems like we're in perpetual uh, voting mode. There's always some election going on in our our nation. um, But also, there's also a city commissioner meeting or city commissioner vote uh, that's uh, nearing. I think November 5th is is when that vote will take place. Um, But generally speaking, I think it's always nice to take a critical uh, eye towards the way we vote, the way we look at politicians, what are the values that we impose, or what are the values that we look for. Um, and so for that, that very reason, that's the reason why I posed this question or that I uh, thought it would be interesting to bring people together to discuss this very topic. Uh, our panelists tonight include Matthew Herbert, 
City Commissioner, Lawrence City Commissioner, uh, Shola Aramona, a graduate student in KU School of Journalism and Mass Communication, Alcides Velasquez, Communication Studies, and Abby Vector, a graduate student in Political Science. Now, the rules are, or the format of tonight's talk is that each panelist will have five to seven minutes to rehash their summary or their position pieces, which you can find on our website. Uh, and following those five to seven minutes after each person has gone, I will have uh, about 25 minutes to 30 minutes of directed questioning, uh, unless I see that there are at least three, uh, two to three people who have questions already ready to go. If that is the case, then I will go ahead and yield to those questions. Uh, and if we, if we uh, lose out on those questions or if, or if we, uh, no questions are being raised after that, then I, will, I have additional questions. Um, and again, tonight, I ask that you not necessarily perceive our panelists as having the uh, definitive answers to this question, uh, but rather they're here to uh, bring up or raise concerns or questions, additional questions, uh, for all, us all to consider. Uh, with, all, with that, please uh, join me in welcoming our panelists. First, uh, Matthew. Sure. I didn't know whether I should bring my laptop or not. Now I feel kind of ridiculous <laughs> with this tiny version of a laptop here. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so when I was asked to be a part of this panel, uh, my immediate impression was, uh, you know, obviously positive. A big part of what got me into local politics was community engagement. Um, the reality, however, of local politics is exactly what you see in this room. Engagement is uh, a nearly impossible hill to climb. Um, I, I kind of, from the start, I've made that one of my um, challenges to, to try to overcome and, and can say that I probably have not produced many more successes than anybody else. Um, and there's several reasons. And so as I sat down to write my position paper, um, I, I wanted to focus on the fact that when I looked at our panelists, we have three panelists who probably have academic expertise far beyond my own. Um, but the one thing that I had on the three panelists was that I've, I've you know, held elected office, currently hold elected office, and I've, I've won elections. And so I, I wanted to, to present kind of a unique perspective to, to these three and talk about um, what life is like being someone who is evaluated by people. Um, as a politician who's evaluated, kind of share some of my experiences. Um, I'm by no means an expert. I've, I was elected in April of 2015. And the way Lawrence City elections work, if you're unfamiliar, you actually get three votes. And so you'll find six names on the ballot and you can vote for your top three. And if you are the first placed vote getter, uh, you receive a four-year term and you become mayor the next year. If you're the second place vote getter, you receive a four-year term and you become mayor two years from now. And if you're the third place vote getter, the, the bridesmaid, uh, you get a two-year term and you don't ever get to be mayor, right? And uh, you sit on the end of the table and, and, and people don't talk to you and, and they look down when you walk by. No. Uh, so the first time I ran, I had uh, basically no idea what I was doing. I was a high school government teacher. I had spent uh, a little over a decade teaching people about policy and policy making. And I had been challenged by some of my students with the old familiar, 
you know, those that can teach, teach, and those that can do, do, you know, and, and they would say, you've been teaching us about politics for a decade, why don't you actually go do something about it? So I took that challenge on and, and ran for local office and fully expected to lose. Uh, the night of the election in 2015, Chad Lawhorn uh, called me to find out where my watch party was. Uh, and I was sitting in my living room with a beer and my two-year-old daughter. And I was like, well, I guess it's in my living room, you know? And, and he asked why I wasn't doing a watch party. And I said, because it's really depressing to be at a watch party where someone loses. And uh, somehow, uh, lo and behold, I, I took third place. I, I got to be the bridesmaid spot, right? Um, and I made it my goal from that point on to really engage with people uh, who may have felt the same way I did as somebody who, you know, I, I, politics is, is behind that door and I'm on this side of the door. I grew up in Lawrence, you know, I went to KU, but what do I actually know about political science? And what I discovered once I came into office was that the beauty of local government is that the things you engage with, it is the minutia that is so widely ignored at the state and national levels. It's actually the stuff that matters, right? It's the stuff that actually forges real uh, change. You know, at the national level, they talk about things that are wildly important, right? We talk about climate change and, and we talk about, uh, you know, all of these huge issues. But in your day-to-day -day life, the actual things that, that happen to you or uh, happen with you or happen because of you, these are the things that, um, as a city commissioner, we actually engage with. And there's really nothing sexy about it, right? We, d we do public safety and infrastructure. When your sewer main collapses, you're really upset. And you want to know why it is that Lawrence, Kansas has over four miles of sewer main that's over 100 years old. That's a fact, right? You want to know what, why is that? You know, when, when we are constantly doing road construction everywhere, you want to know why is it that you're constantly doing road construction everywhere? And, and you know, that's, that's a fair question to ask. So um, David asked me to kind of address um, some ways in which I feel politicians should be evaluated. And, and uh, if you're here uh, to learn about the national level evaluation, I have nothing to offer you, sorry. Uh, my level of engagement with the national level is the same as yours, uh, I vote. Uh, but I, I can tell you a little bit about the local level and that's what I'd kind of like to spend a few minutes doing. Um, if you read my position paper, I opened by talking about the fact that what makes politics difficult is that there is no quantifiable measure, right? There's no statistic. If we're looking at sports and we want to talk about if guy A is better than guy B, we can look at some sort of measurable number and say, you have this number of hits and you have this number of hits, so clearly you are better than you are. There is no real quantitative measure in local politics. I don't have statistics uh, of things that, that I have accomplished. And so it becomes uh, everybody's free will as to what they think. And so the answer to the question, how do you evaluate politicians, it's, it's really simple. I didn't need to write a position paper on it. It's really simple. It's, it's perception is reality. If you perceive that I'm doing a good job, I'm doing a good job. If you perceive that I'm doing a poor job, you should vote for someone else. I'm doing a poor job. It's that simple. There is no statistical basis for me to tell you you're wrong. Um, what makes it frustrating is this, right? There's seven people here. And these are the people that are really engaged. And these are the people that will actually do their homework and know what's going on. And then there's 99,000 other people out there that get as many votes as all of you get. And that's incredibly frustrating. And I can't tell you in my two campaigns going door to door how many things I've been yelled at 
for doing that literally I didn't do or had nothing to do with the local government jurisdiction, you know? And what do you do? Do you tell someone they're wrong about their opinion? That's the beauty of, of democracy is you get an opinion, you get a vote, even if your vote is an uneducated one or based deeply in ignorance. Um, and that happens a lot. But what makes the Lawrence City Commission very unique is that we are a nonpartisan body. Uh, I am not allowed to run as a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or whatever else. Uh, I, I am not allowed to have that letter after my name. When you show up to vote, it's Matthew Herbert on the ballot. I think it says actually Matthew Herbert, comma, Lawrence, which is weird because you have to live in the city of Lawrence. They all say comma, Lawrence, right? It's totally unnecessary and I'm kind of, yeah, anyway. Uh, but what makes evaluation difficult is in this country, in, in our current political climate, it's so easy to hate a group. Right? In the era of Donald Trump, there's a lot of people that say, like, I will not vote for a Republican. Okay, that's fine. How do you translate that to local politics? When you show up and there's six names on the ballot, and I want to vote against the Republicans, but none of them have ours after their name. How do you do that? And the answer is, you too late. Like, if you've shown up to vote and you don't know why you're voting, it's too late. You have to do your homework on the front end, which is why local elections have terrible attendance. Um, let me give you a, I said there are no stats in local government. Let me give you a stat. This last election uh, cycle, when I was reelected, uh, I received, I think, something like 7,700 votes. That's neat. I live in a town of 100,000 people. And I got 7,000 votes and won. Okay? That's horrifying. You should receive 7,000 votes in a town like Lawrence and be laughed out of town. And I won. Okay, let me give you another statistic. When you're a candidate, you receive printouts of all the precincts and it shows your voter percentage in each precinct. And so, you know, I get mine and I'm really excited because the voter precinct that represents the KU dorm system, I got 100% of the vote there. And I thought, see, my engagement with students is paying off. Young people, they love Matthew Herbert. This is, I'm gonna ride this train. And then you flip it over and it shows you the actual numbers. One. There was one student in the KU dorms system that voted in the local election of 2017. It gets better. It was my sister. <laughs> okay. So I called her up and I thanked her for her vote. Uh, uh, but anyway, it, it, how do you fix that? How do you get engagement? And I've spent four years trying to figure it out and I would say I have not had any success. Um, so that's the first thing is that nonpartisan issue makes it difficult for people to want to pay attention because it's not easy. It's not easy like national government's easy. Uh, secondly, what makes it difficult to evaluate a city commissioner is that we are part of a collective body. You know, our, our Tuesday night meetings look like this. And so I hear people all the time that say, man, the Lawrence City Commission, I hate them because they did... Uh, they gave a, a tax incentive to such and such. He's a developer. That's, you know, that's horrible. And so suddenly you get lumped with the whole because you were part of the body that passed that. And nobody ever does any disaggregation of the data to say like, well, that was a 3-2 vote. So two people actually spoke out against it. There's, sure, we keep minutes and there's a record and you can go on YouTube and watch our meetings. And we have numbers of who does that. And our last Tuesday meeting, we had 134 people watching in a community of 100,000. We had 134 people watching. So a lot of times local officials get evaluated based on perception. I perceive you to be bad because as a collective, this commission did bad things. That's difficult. Um, 
and then the last thing, uh, kind of a, a humbling comment I, I made in, in that paper was that, um, frankly, I, I think people perceive local politicians as having more power than they actually have. There is this belief that we can do things that we cannot do. Um, and that's, believe me, it's really frustrating. Uh, and as I told David, it makes a really bad campaign bumper sticker to say, like, I can't help you. Like, that's, if that was my campaign motto, you know, put it on a bumper sticker, I'll drive around town and say, I can't help you. But the vast majority of concerns people bring to me, that's the honest answer, is that's actually not within my jurisdiction. Um, we deal with public safety and infrastructure in the city limits of Lawrence, Kansas, and that's a pretty small window. Um, the example I, I gave David that I constantly hear about is South Lawrence Trafficway. That is a disaster, okay? It is a fatality waiting to happen. They've already happened. I don't know why I said waiting. It's more fatalities waiting to happen. It, the speed limit signage on that road far exceeds the engineering that went behind that road. It is a terribly designed, underbuilt, um, poor excuse for a bypass. The purpose of a bypass is to enable people to get around town quickly drive on it at 4.30 between Wakarusa and Castle and tell me you're going anywhere quickly. You can put your car in park. Uh, it is horrible. And people come to me all the time and tell me that. Well, here's the fundamental problem. The SLT is K-10. That's a Kansas highway. Even though it runs literally around the entire city of which I serve, I have zero jurisdiction over that road. Uh, and people call me all the time and say, what? why aren't you doing anything about it? And the honest answer is, there is nothing that I can do. You and I Everyone in this room has the exact same amount of power and influence as I do when it comes to that road. And that's horribly frustrating. And so one of the things I always talk to people about as you become more active in politics is focusing on jurisdiction, understanding what your concerns are and who those people are that can actually touch those issues. Um, and there's a, there's a big disconnect in local politics in terms of people, uh, people's understanding of what a city commissioner does. Um, and, and that can be a bit frustrating. But to kind of wrap up and, and conclude, I'll say what I opened with, and that is, how do you evaluate a politician? Well, as a politician, perception is reality. If what you see happening is moving the needle in a positive direction, then it's moving in a positive direction. If what you see happening is moving the needle in a negative direction, then it's moving in a negative direction. That's as simple as it is, that perception is reality, and that's how democracy is supposed to work, as fundamentally flawed as that is. That's how it's supposed to work, I believe. So, anyway, thank you. Okay, um, I just got lost there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I was saying. Um, thank you. So my position is um, on. So I got. David's email, I was back in, I'm originally from Lagos, Nigeria. I was back home for the summer break and then I got his email and I was excited about it. I was like, well, someone is um, maybe paying attention to what I'm doing on campus, like my research interest. Um, and so I'm here to talk about my research and how that sort of tie into what David had in mind. So um, I've been working on um, political personalization and um, evaluation of candidates by voters. And that's how politicians, basically how politicians use social media to um, sort of campaign. And then how they also use social media to, or the media to, um, as a whole to um, silent 
opposition and how voters evaluate these politicians based on what they see them do on social media. Um, my position piece, um, I said that everyone is selfish. And I said that, and I have to say, after sending that to David, I was like, well, I think that I wanted like um, a break between the self and the ish, so, so selfish doesn't come off as negative to whoever is reading, but anyway, that's late. Um, so um, I don't mean selfish in the very negative sense, but I feel like everyone is selfish, and based on the research that I've done, um, and I say that because Politicians, based on the research that I've done, politicians would want to give, you know, like their best selves, you know, how there. They want to present their best selves um, while campaigning for office. And also while they are in office, they also want to maintain this um, self-image, um, um, this impression that they are competent and that they are um, everything that you thought of them before they came into office. Um, and so because of this, they are not necessarily based on research, they're not necessarily um, thinking about, I mean, they put themselves, they think about themselves first. They want to get into office and they want to stay in office. And that's like the, like the fundamental driving force. Now, they may have other um, factors while they want to get into office, maybe because they like Matthew, they've been teaching government for so long and they feel like they want to do rather than just teach, or maybe because they feel like they can actually make a difference in the society. Um, those are good factors, but underlying those factors is the fact that they want to win elections. They want to win elections to do whatever they want to do, right? And they want to stay in office to do whatever they want to do. And, and that's the reason I said selfish may have been too harsh for me to use, you know? Because when someone say, when you read that someone is selfish, you might think that, oh, they're just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about themselves in terms of getting into office. And they use whatever, um, whatever avenues or whatever tools that they, um, that's available to them. One of the tools that they use these days on social media is um, what's called political personalization. And um, how many of you have, maybe like you follow your favorite politician on Twitter, on Facebook or whatever, and you've seen them, or even watched their um, campaigns on TV or in, um, what's it called, in, um, in a commercial, like in a campaign mess ad, and you're like, huh, I can relate with this person. I can relate with whatever this person is saying. So political personalization is this idea that polit politicians use this um, concept of they use their personal selves to sell their campaign messages. And so you see politicians talking about their childhood to talk about maybe health care, or um, you know, they talk about their kids to talk about to sell policies about gun control, for instance, or whatever policies that they are um, concerned about. So they're using their personal stories. They are highlighting their personal stories or experiences in their um, campaign messages or in their political communication, whether before elections or even after elections in most times, I mean, in most cases. Um, and so when voters, when they see a politician who is um, talking about his child, you know, or her child, they feel some connection. You feel like this person is like me. You feel like uh, I can trust this person to actually go into office and do something about gun control because they have a kid in high school. Um, and so these are um, strategies that politicians use. And these are strategies that, when they use the strategies, um, appeal to voters 
and voters then evaluate those candidates, um, political candidates, um, very favorably because they feel like, and this person is very warm and this very person is very competent. Now, um, another aspect of my research is gender. So basically I study political communication and interaction of gender in that. Um, research shows that gender then plays a part in how politicians use this person, like political personalization. So you'll find that female politicians don't do so much of I'm a mother or I have a child because that's, um, it, it, it's, uh, um, it's not acceptable in society that a woman would want to be in a leadership position. And so they, when you say that, when a woman says that I have a child or re refer to a uh, um, family or uh, you know being a mother or a wife and all of that, you see people, they, voters evaluate such candidates very negatively because they feel like, ah, you're a mother, you really cannot, you're going to be everywhere, you know, at the same time, you really cannot focus on the, um, on the, on the, um, like the policies that you should focus on, that you should really stay home and take care of your kids, you know. However, men, on the other hand, do play this dad cat a lot because it warms people hop. It makes people feel, ah, oh, he's a man. He takes care of his family. So definitely he's going to be able to take care of the country or whatever a portfolio he has. Um, and so voters, so politicians basically use this wanting to maintain a favorable impression in the mind of um, voters to appeal to voters and to appeal to their you know, constituents even to just continue to like them. Voters, on the other hand, Research have um, sort of looked into what makes voters evaluate candidates in certain ways. And I do appreciate the fact that you mentioned that. There's really no one way to say this is how politicians are evaluated. Because that's the truth. There is no one variable that you can look at to say this is, if this variable is present, then this voter, this politician is going to be um, evaluated positively, you know, whether before election or while they are in office. There are, um, and in my position piece, I made it clear that there are multiple factors that make voters think about politicians in certain ways. Um, certain research have looked at just political affiliation. So like you said, if you're a Republican, then you want to vote for Republicans. Um, if you're a Democrat, then you want to vote for Democratic um, um, candidates. But the truth is sometimes political affiliation doesn't necessarily play a part in how voters evaluate candidates. Even when they know that this, this candidate is, is, um, maybe has shared the same political affiliation as they do. Um, one, of, one of the other ways that voters evaluate candidates is, um, and I think this is most important, and um, not a lot of research has looked into this, and this is what I'm currently doing, trying to marry all of these variables that have been looked at separately um, to sort of marry all of them to see if all of these variables, if there are interactions between all of these variables and how voters then evaluate candidates. But one of these um, variables I think is very important is the issue of topic uh, or issue salience. That is the perception that an issue is very important. So um, I feel that Voters would evaluate a candidate, whether negatively or positively, depending on how they perceive the topic or the issue or the policy that this candidate is about, based on how they feel that that policy is important. 
So for instance, if I feel like um, illegal immigration is very important to me, then if a Republican um, candidate is talking about building the wall, <laughs> um, then I may want to think about that candidate and say, okay, maybe this candidate has something to offer me because this candidate is going to like pull out, put out illegal immigration, even if they don't share the same affiliation as I do. Um, if I feel like gun control is, a, you know, is important to me, then a politician who is talking about, you know, policies and gun control becomes someone that I vote, that I evaluate positively, than someone who isn't talking about that particular topic. Um, and so that's one of the ways that voters evaluate candidates. Another way that voters evaluate candidates that, um, that I also think sort of play a huge part or it's like an umbrella reason for why it's difficult for voters to, uh, I mean, why it's difficult for us to say that this is one particular way that voters would evaluate candidate and uh, political candidates is because like um, Susan Fisk said, humans are cognitive misers. We don't always cognitively process information whether the information is from the politicians during the campaigns or during while they are in office. We don't necessarily all sit down to think about what is this person saying and what, is, what does this mean for me? That we don't spend time to engage in the, in the information that we receive from our politicians, from our, um, from our political leaders. So we, and I'm using we because I'm also like, I also do this. Um, we do what it's called heuristic processing. So we just use the very, I mean, the most basic processing that we can use, the most basic cognitive um, effort. That's what we put into um, processing information from our political um, leaders. And so because we do that, it's very difficult for us to, to um, evaluate candidates based on what exactly they're about because we're not looking holistically at what they do or who they are, but we are more interested in, okay, this guy is talking about gun control. Whether he's not thinking about how to move the economy forward or like he's just bent on gun control and that's the one thing that he's gonna get into office to do, we're not concerned about how other factors of the polity would, would fare you know, when all the, when all the um, effort is put on gun control. And I give you an example. Like I said, I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. And um, our current president, President, um, President Muhammadu Buhari, I was going to say general, because it was a military um, leader before he became a, um, a democratically elected president. Um, so he came into office on this... Um, premise of integrity and fighting corruption. If you've heard about Nigeria, it's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And that is not because we are bad people, but because we have really, really corrupt political leaders. Um, and we have, and they have allies in the West as well. So they get all the, so everyone is selfish, basically. And the world is just evil. The world is just corrupt, right? Because these folks get the money that, you know, from, from Nigeria, for instance, and they bring it to the West. And the West's, you know, government, they help them keep this monies and all of that. And, you know, everything is fine. But when there's going to be a list of corrupt countries, the Western countries don't get named, you know? But anyway, um, so... <laughs> 
So he came, he rode to, into office on this premise that he was coming to fight corruption. And he got into, into office, and all he wanted to do was to go after folks who are perceived to be corrupt. You know, people who were in previous um, governments and all of that. And the economy suffered. And Nigeria went into its worst recession ever in like years in 2016. I was doing my master's, it was difficult for me to pay my fees because the, um, ex the exchange rate was like crazily high. And, and, and so because you were going after thieves, you sort of closed shop, you know, so the economy suffered and you're trying to like fight corruption. And definitely, I mean, the, the, the um, what's it called? It's, it's very obvious that the most logical thing that's going to happen is corruption is going to fight back. Because if you're not doing anything about the economy, people will go find ways to cut, you know, like ways to find, I mean, means to sort of fend for themselves, to find food for, them, food for themselves and all of that. And so the corruption that you're trying to fight you're fighting the large-scale corruption, but the smaller-scale corruption would continue to fester. And so, if and so, because we, you know, Nigerians voted this guy based on that fact that we heuristically evaluated him. You know, like we felt corruption was the most important thing. We weren't thinking about other things. And so, to wrap up, voters evaluate candidates heuristically. And so we don't always take cognizance of all other factors that will, play in, that will play a part in the polity. And so we don't get the best of politicians that we should get. And the country or you know, the city, the state, whatever, at whatever level of government suffers. Yeah. Hi, well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. So we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you all. I'm, I'm from Johnson County, and I live there now, so I didn't get the chance to be one of one of your 7,000 voters. I'm sorry. But um, it's, it's really great to be with you all. And I am a PhD student in political science. And when we talk about political science theory, often we talk about um, theory that either builds the voter up or tears the voter down. In our conversation tonight, um, we've kind of been tearing the voter down, and I'm going to be doing the same thing. So <laughs> we, we like to think of our democracy as being this great example of rational people coming together and evaluating candidates and politicians um, based on policy and how that policy can better their community. Um, and that doesn't happen often, and that's sad, and I'm not trying to make this a sad event, but it is, it is true, and Matthew made a comment about at national politics, it's easy. Um, it's easy to vote because you have that little R or that D behind the candidate's name, and my whole position um, basically aligns with that exactly, right? That is how we tend to evaluate candidates based on their identity. My whole position piece is how social identity matters in politics. And social identity can be a lot of different things. It can be someone's gender, it can be someone's race, someone's sexual orientation, and it can be someone's political party. And we've seen recently that partisan identity means more now than it has before. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of what informs not only our candidate evaluations, um, but also our very participation in politics, how we participate to the extent to which we participate, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to get too 
theoretical, um, but as Matthew commented, he's on a panel with academics, so we had to bring in some theory at some point. Um, so my whole position piece is really about social identity theory and what social identity theory means for politics. So social identity theory is basically saying that individuals understand who they are based on their membership within a group. And it's not just about objectively being a member of that group, but how much that group matters to an individual's sense of self. So I, as a white woman, hold different identities, but some of those identities might mean more to me than others. Um, and that's gonna influence my politics in particular ways. We have a lot of research in political science that talks about the power of social identity and how it's capable of predicting attitudes, it's capable of predicting um, who, or who people are gonna vote for, what we think of candidates, et cetera. So my research, I'm not gonna dive too much into that now, but it's actually on gun owners in the United States, how gun ownership has become a social identity and how that has propelled gun owners into the political sphere in a different way. And we see how politicians are able to politicize different social identities to impact candidate evaluations and impact voting themselves. So Tajville and Turner are these scholars who kind of were the first to say that how we see ourselves is based on the, the groups that we're in. And we tend to categorize ourselves and others through a very distinct process in which there's a clear us and them. So when I think about candidate evaluation, I'm thinking how a candidate is able to activate these ideas of us in them. I'm a member of your group, you ought to vote for me, et cetera, et cetera. And again, that can be a partisan identity, like we talked about, that R or that D that you see when you go into the voting booth. But it could also be um, talking about kind of a shared gender identity, right? Or a co-ethnic identity that may matter. And candidates are able to activate that in a different way. So political scientists say that social identity doesn't matter for politics until politicians politicize it in some way. Um, my favorite example of this is we always talk in classes about, okay, what makes an identity a social identity? What makes it important? My professor always tends to joke that people who own Apple products are a certain class of people. <laughs> They're very into their Apple products. They're only gonna own Apple products. But why is that not an identity? Well, that hasn't been politicized in the same way that gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and partisanship itself has been, right? So it's, it's a different class, I shouldn't say class, a different um, type of identity in which politicians are seeking to activate it. So there's a couple of ways that this impacts how we evaluate candidates. And the first is kind of this idea about stereotyping. So the first step in perceiving somebody is to really classify that person into a category. And oftentimes those categorizations are based on social identity. So once classified, people are organizing generic knowledge about these categories to process information about that person and make decisions based on that information. So once we stereotype a candidate, even when we receive information contrary to that candidate, it's gonna be hard for us to process that information. Instead, we're gonna to wanna to twist it in a way that fits with the stereotypes that we often have. I think to your highway example, Matthew, right? Once we have it in our mind that it's your fault, <laughs> that that's a bad highway, right? It's hard for us to process new information that's going to say the contrary. We have a stereotype of what the city commission does, and it's going to be hard for us to process information that's, that's contrary to that. So we often use the identity of the politician to kind of evaluate them using shortcuts. Um, something I mentioned in my... Um, 
position piece is we value efficiency over accuracy. And that's going to play a part, especially when we know little about the candidate. When we're thinking about local elections especially, we don't know who we're voting for. We're going to rely on efficiency over accuracy. What's the quickest way I can decide if this is someone I want to vote for? Maybe by looking at them, right? It may be by um, hearing about their family life. It may just be knowing that, well, this may not be a partisan election. I know they've been a Republican in the past, so I'm going to vote for them, right? We use these different shortcuts and these different heuristics to, to evaluate candidates quickly. Social identity also is just not about evaluating candidates. It actually impacts our very likelihood to participate, right? I talked a little bit about how different politicians um, can be effective at politicizing identity. And they do that in very specific ways. We know that groups are more likely to turn out when they feel like they're threatened in some way. Their status is threatened in some way. One of the most recent, and I would argue relevant examples of this happening is, is Donald Trump in his 2016 candidacy. He was able to activate this white social identity that maybe hadn't been there before by talking about the threat to the status quo. His very campaign slogan, right, Make America Great Again, was this idea that something's changing and people are losing power. And those people were a very specific group of people. And by doing that, by activating that political identity, by politicizing one social identity, he was able to turn out a group of people that maybe hadn't turned out before. And he was able to do so by threatening the status, or at least creating a narrative in which that status was threatened. So that's just kind of a prime example of how social identities can be politicized, and that's something that's always changing. Um, social identity is going to play a part in every election at every level. Um, it's it's especially powerful at the local level when we're not as informed. Um, and then that's when we're going to rely on those stereotypes, rely on identities to use shortcuts in order to evaluate political candidates. Um, so this was a very brief um, introduction kind of to social identity theory and how it influences candidate evaluation. But it's something that I think is important and something to watch for in 2020, even as we're looking. I study national politics, sorry. So I'm in 2020 mindset. Um, I also teach American national government, so my students are all in 2020 mindset. But even watching um, the Democratic primary race, we are seeing different social identities being emphasized, different social identities being politicized. And that's in order to change the perception of those candidates. All those candidates are working hard to not only make their own social identity clear, but to activate certain groups of people in the electorate in order to win the election. Thank yeah, thanks. Oh, yes. Thank you. All right. So uh, thank you for coming. Um, when I got the email from, from David, I, uh, I was a little bit worried because I didn't, in my research, I'm also I'm a, a professor in the communication studies department. I don't really do, uh, uh, my research is not on uh, evaluation of politicians. I uh, study more social media and political expression through social media. So I was a little bit worried about how to connect the topic with, uh, with my own research. So he suggested maybe I could look at, uh, uh, like the question could be, 
if whether social social media expression using social media for political um, uh, objectives and goals would is uh, something that is positive or negative, good or bad for for democracy. Is something that uh, do we do we actually want to be using social media for either evaluating politicians or engaging in in uh, politics in general? Uh, so that's where um, I am coming from, and that's what I am going to be discussing. Uh, however, and uh, I find that very um, very interesting is that I, I now that I'm the last one talking, I think I find a lot of um, coincidence uh, between what you say and what my, uh, my uh, position is. So in general, when we talk about um, the, uh, the way in which any technology affects society, uh, we need to be very careful in saying whether that's that um, that way in which the technology is going to affect society is good or bad or positive or negative, um, because it's going to depend on a lot of things. Uh, the first thing uh, that is going to depend on is how we um, where we uh, how we approach that question. So, do we understand technology as an external force? shaping or affecting society um, like as if technology was not a product of the society where it's, it, it is produced. Um, that would be uh, technological determinism. Um, again, um, uh, in, in academia, so it's really hard for me not to talk about theories and, and concepts and defining concepts and so on. Um, so. So the first approach, the first, the first question would be, how do you approach that relationship? How technology affects society? One possible approach could be uh, technological determinism. It's the idea that technology will have the same effects everywhere, independent of the society we're talking about. So if, if uh, from a technological deterministic point of view, the internet or social media is going to affect society and politics in the same way here and in China and Vietnam and anywhere. Because you can argue that social media and the internet is, uh, I, I don't know, uh, them, uh, liberating technology and people are going to be able to use it for, um, uh, you know, for expressing freely their own opinions and so on. Uh, so the effect of technology would be the same for uh, everyone, anywhere, at any time. Uh, the other approach would be more like social construction of technology, which is, all right, so, uh, but technologies are a product of uh, the historical moment of societies and cultures. So it's not that technologies change society, but certain events in societies and cultures make possible that certain technologies emerge. So it is actually society, the one that is shaping technology and technology production. And the other one, uh, which is the one that I am talking from, is social shaping of technology, which is the idea that uh, both technology and society shape each other. 
Um, and in that part, from that particular paradigm or, or theoretical approach about the, the, the relationship between technology and society, uh, there's an important concept that is called affordance, which is a little bit difficult to, uh, to understand and to define, but I'm, I'm going to try um, not to confuse you more. Uh, so affordances refer to how the combination of the material characteristics of an object, together with how people relate, relate to the object based on their needs and motivations and, and, and their own context and so, uh, and so on, how uh, that combination of the material characteristics of the object and people's uses of that object or motivations uh, enable certain uses and shape certain effects. So uh, the affordances of social media can help us understand the way in which, given the, uh, the uh, social media, the characteristics of social media, and the way we use them and adapt them and adopt them uh, give shape to particular effects and particular uses. So the combination of affordances basically are going to give possibility to certain uses and certain effects. Uh, so the question would be, what social media affordances might play a role in the relationship between uh, social media and politics? So. The first one that comes to mind is the uh, affordance of inter interactivity. So, uh, so what's what's interest? One of the things that is very interesting about social media is that uh, the users of social media are the ones that can that actually generate the content. It's not like. Uh, uh, mass communication media where it's a one-way uh, technology. Here on social media, it's the users producing or generating the content and then uh, interacting with other users about the content that they have generated. Um, so uh, usually when we post on social media, we are expecting other people to react to our posts, to like them, to share them, to we want people to follow us, and we follow other people and, and pay attention to what they're saying and so on. So um, that's an, 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 a very important affordance of social media and how it, it can uh, shape Together with other with other affordances, it can shape its potential um, effects. Uh, for example, when thinking about uh, the um, the um, the interactivity affordance, there's something that uh, that happens on social media uh, that usually doesn't in other type of media, which is incidental exposure. So usually, when you are browsing. You're, you're looking at your news feed on Facebook or looking at your, the, the tweets um, of people, sometimes you are exposed to content that you are not necessarily looking for or are not like mm, intentionally wanting to be exposed to, right? So for example, um, finding the political opinion of someone um, and finding out that maybe you don't share with that person the same opinion about a particular issue. Or when, for example, someone shares 
a particular piece of information, a news, a news piece about an issue, and they in the in that in that news piece they are um, talking about something in a way that you don't necessarily uh, agree with. So. Uh, because of the uh, interactivity affordance, you can be potentially exposed to content that you, uh, from the very beginning, you were not, um, you were not planning to be exposed to, and that's, and that's made possible because of the uh, interactivity affordance. Another important affordance is uh, what we call the uh, temporal structure of communication on social media, which basically is, you know, on social media, co communication can be synchronous or asynchronous. So it can happen like face-to-face -face or when you're talking with someone on the phone, it's happening in real time, or it can be not in real time, asynchronous, right? Uh, which is how communication on social media takes place. When you post something, it's not like someone's going to react immediately, right? It's like minutes later or hours later or uh, the next day uh, that people are going to share your post or, or retweet it or, or react to whatever you said. The same way when you are talking with someone over the phone, like uh, texting, that's also a synchronous communication because although you maybe you are having a conversation, that conversation can take you know days because you are not doing it at the same time. Uh, so the asynchronous um, affordance of asynchronous communication affordance of social media enables uh, something that other communication media doesn't, which is the uh, allows for more selective self-presentation. Um, for example, if you are talking with someone and you want to make, if you are texting someone and you want to make the best impression, you are very careful in crafting your own message, right? Uh, it would be more challenging if the conversation was face to face and it would be and it was happening like in real time you wouldn't have time to edit yourself right if you would have to think very fast but on social media or in digital media you have time to edit yourself and to selective selectively self present and to and to manage your impression uh, much better so that's something that social media enables because of the asynchronous um, communication affordance. And that's something that comes to the advantage of everyone when we interact with others on social media, but, if you, but especially for people that want to manage their impressions, like in the case of politicians, that they want to show their best face or construct a particular image for a certain audience, the asynchronous affordance enables that um, very well. Um, but at the same time, social media allows users to connect to a broader audience. So we have interactivity, we have asynchronous communication, and we have an affordance that uh, some people call uh, the reach affordance of social media or the uh, connectivity affordance of social media. So uh, 
with social media, what happens with social media is that people can connect with others. Uh, in some cases, for example, on Facebook, there's, need, there's the need to be a reciprocal uh, connection. But in others, like on Twitter, there's no need for reciprocity. But what seems important is that you can that you can construct your audience in some way. You can you can reach and you can uh, you can reach a wider audience, and not only because you can establish connections with other people with a wide social with a broad social network, but also because of the uh, because of the way in which social media is built, people can retweet or share your own posts. So if you have a particular audience in mind uh, when you post something, okay, uh, then that people can uh, people can share with others whatever uh, whatever content you you shared, um, and that's that's something that that is important because then that makes your audience the potential audience that you have much bigger than what you have originally planned. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not so good because uh, if you if you are thinking about a, a very specific, a very uh, restricted audience, and your message goes uh, beyond that particular audience, then that might play uh, against you. Like when someone, when you're talking with someone, and then they're recording you, and they they play that that whatever you were saying, they play that uh, somewhere else. That that might bring you some some that that makes uh, that bring might bring you some some problems, and that's uh, something that we call context collapse. When you are aware of the fact that maybe your audiences, your different different audiences, might not be uh, that your message maybe might not be tailored to the different audiences that you have that you potentially have, um, and that's a risk for. Politicians, but also a risk for um, our own social media political expression. Um, at the same time, this ability to reach and connect to a broader audience might end up in more ideological homogeneity because at the end, we tend to be friends with people that are very similar with, uh, to us. And we also tend to uh, follow news media outlets that or people that share our own political ideology, like social identity tells us, right? So that can polarizes us, polarize us even more. Like maybe we end up interacting, interacting only with a very uh, small um, social network of people, of people that think very similar to us, and maybe that's not so good for our democracy because that means that then society might become polarized. But at the same time, if your group is, um, if if, they, if 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 your group belong, if your group is maybe a marginalized group or a, or a minority, that might place that might play in your in your advantage because then you might. Um, as you as your as you become more um, affiliated with people that think like you, maybe you get more um, confident about the potential things that you can do to change uh, the status of your group. So, you know, it's a the the potential effects of social media for democracy are definitely mixed, and they're gonna depend on a lot of things. Um, 
not only on social media, but also how we use them on our own social identity and political identification and how we build our social networks and, and so on. So that's it. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. That was really, really interesting talk. Uh, I learned a lot about local politics, uh, which I, I actually didn't know that before. Um, so that was great. Um, but I have a I had a question for Abby and Shola. So um, the claim that you made was something along the lines of, this is how people evaluate politicians, either by way of social identity, they'll find a politician that they share some identity with, um, and they're politicizing it in a way to get you to vote for them, or there's some aim. So uh, some individual has some aim, namely either I don't want immigrants in my country, and so this person, insofar as they are trying to eschew them, I'm gonna vote for them. So uh, the question that I had was, um, A, do you find that most people vote this way, and B, what data or what, what sort of data do you look at to support that? Um, so for uh, mine, research, the data that I'm working with is actually from um, self, there are some from self-reported surveys as well as experiments. An experiment is used to for causation to see, like, um, to the fact to um, measure cause and effect. So while we have self-reported surveys that, uh, I mean, we don't always want that because it's what the participant says, right? But with experiment, we can actually say for a fact if there is a cause, um, correlation or a causation. So that's where um, that's the data I'm working with. Yeah, for um, political science, there is a lot of experimental work too. When we look at large data sets, we'll kind of look at candidate evaluation and then we'll look at policy positions. So someone may have an inconsistent policy opinion, right? They may show really high support for Donald Trump, but when asked about health care, they're supporting single-payer health care system, right? And you wonder how those two things are matching, and then through experiments and other different studies, we can see when we change the political party of a candidate, that changes their evaluation, even if the policy positions remain exactly the same. Um, the same work has been done um, with gender, but we find it's a little more difficult. We almost see that it's related to partisanship as well. Um, when people see a female candidate, they tend to assume that she's a Democrat. So we, it's hard to kind of parse out if it's the partisan identity or the gender identity that's making a difference. Um, but yeah, through a lot of experiment work, and then we can kind of, it's sad, but track the inconsistency of, of public opinion at the, at the macro level. Um, some interesting research points to how people sort of randomly decide on policy, so they have maybe one thing 
they care about, and then everything else is completely random. Um, but we have in political science what we call the miracle of aggregation. So when you bring it all to the top, those random responses are, are evenly distributed. So it may be the informed opinion of the few that are still making the decisions because of the random distribution of the other opinions. <laughs> yeah. On that uh, issue of the, the randomness, you see that a lot at the local level because so many candidates enter the arena as single issue candidates. You know, that whatever the talking point of the day is locally, um, they're going to latch onto that and they know that there's a group within the community that are angry about policy X and so they get elected and then five minutes after they get elected, you learn that they literally have no experience with anything else and, and so, okay, so we're going to deal with this one topic but now you have four years left in your term and you don't know a th the thing about infrastructure or about uh, you know, uh, planning or development or anything like that. It happens all the time. You can, uh, and I'm not excluding myself from that group by any means. You can, means you can go down almost every commissioner for the last 10 years and point to the single issue that got them elected. And, and it's, it's because they don't have a, a letter to latch on to. You know, I'm, I'm angry about sidewalks, so here's my sidewalk candidate. Well, what else does that person care about? It doesn't matter. I'm angry about sidewalks. So. Uh, to uh, go to the question of, like, what evidence and, and data we look at when, when like, for example, uh, I, can, I, I can think of a very specific example of how social identity um, plays a role in in um, political participation. You know, political participation can be defined in very different ways. Uh, I include social media expression or social media political expression as a form of political participation. So I did a study looking at um, identification as Latino and how that played a role in the, in, uh, um, the uh, type of information that people uh, looked at online for the issue of immigration and how that also influenced social media expression about immigration. Um, and what we found was that the stronger uh, the identification as Latino, the more people felt that they, uh, sh that they had a lot in common with Latinos and that Latinos shared a lot of common characteristics and experiences and, you know, that they thought of themselves as, a, as a stereotypical members of, of that group. The more they looked online for, uh, for information about immigration that was consistent with their own attitudes about immigration and the more they um, used social media for, for political expression on that particular issue. So that's an example of how, you know, in this case, social identity can shape political participation. A very fun example of this that I like to show in class is um, Jimmy Kimmel will go, um, and in 2016 he did this and he went to Hillary Clinton rally and said Donald Trump quotes and said that Hillary Clinton had said them and watched her supporters say absolutely I 100% agree with that statement. So that's kind of a fun way, a fun example of how that really plays out.
So I just spent the last 15 years living in Washington, D.C., and I actually ended up spending, I'm moving back here to the Midwest and spent the summer in Iowa. Um, technically, I'm sixth generation Iowan, but haven't really lived there. Um, and so it's been fascinating watching the caucus process. Um, and one thing that I was thinking in terms of the local activism um, I mean, it's been fascinating to watch just as sort of somebody coming in who doesn't really know a lot about the local politics. And obviously, they're focused on the national politicians and the people who are running for office, and it's their campaigns that are doing these events. But, you know, these islands are extremely knowledgeable at the local level and engaged at the local level, the state level, and the national level. And... In D.C., it was sort of the same thing for a little bit of a different reason. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know about the stuff that was going on in politics because you were going to, say, a political event because most of us were, you know, we'd scratch our eyes out rather than do that because we lived it all day long. But, you know, you you had that sort of ethos because, you know, there was this identity like we're all in Washington, you know, and voting was important. You know, they just gave us the vote in the 70s, you know, and so everybody takes that responsibility very clearly. So I'm curious, like, how that sort of identity falls into, you know, say, a Kansas voter versus an Iowa voter and their role, you know, how seriously they take that in their role in sort of electing politicians. This is the only place I've ever lived, so anecdotally I can't compare my experience uh, anywhere else. I, I think one of the issues we run into with local participation uh, in Lawrence is, is the transient nature of our population. Um, we deal with, uh, you know, I said we have 100,000 people living here, but the reality is we have about 65, 70,000 permanent residents, and we have 100,000 people living here. Um, and I'll tell you, from a policymaking standpoint, that's an absolute nightmare because I have to budget infrastructure for a 100,000 population, but four months out of the year, 20,000 of my residents don't pay sales tax or don't pay, you know. We also live in a community where 56% of our properties are residential rental properties. I mean, we have the majority of the population are not property owners. So, you know, you're dealing with, well, we fund local government through property tax and sales tax, and 44% of our population pays property tax. Now, I understand that through rent, you're actually paying, I get all that, but, you know, the, but um, being able to understand why Iowa has more success engaging people locally than Kansas, I, I couldn't tell you other than, um, I, I will say that uh, we, the state has actually tried some cures. Um, the state has heavily pushed our local government to, to become partisan. The county commission, Douglas County Commission, has become partisan. They are now a partisan body. Uh, we fought it tooth and nail in 2015. And I, I mean, I flat out said in 2015, if you make me put a letter after my name, I won't run again. And a lot of people said, oh, thank God, let's do that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just not um, one of the things that I'm very proud of is the fact that I've been able to play kind of that nonpartisan card. I mean, what, truthfully, I'll, I'll go to my, my grave with one of the proudest moments in my life was in 2015, on the exact same day, I received the endorsement of the Douglas County Democrats and the Douglas County Republicans because they didn't know better. 
right? Because they, you know, it's just like you, you, it turns out you actually have to listen to people when they don't have a letter. And, uh, and that is why I sincerely hope, even though it means we're not as engaged, I sincerely hope we always remain nonpartisan because that's real policy. You have to listen. You know, democracy is, it requires um, participation and not just like I showed up, you know, I, I hate those I voted stickers and I hate them because every time I, I see them, I wanna ask people, but did you engage? You know, voting is easy. I take my, se my seven-year-old daughter has never missed an election. She has no idea what's going on, but she's never missed an election. And people who have the I voted sticker didn't do any more than she did. She followed me into the, you know, did you engage? I want to see people with stickers that say, I engaged. And I, I would wear that sticker. <laughs> So I had some more uh, specific questions, but I guess I'll keep it more general just to uh, not bog things down. So um, a lot of the comments made throughout the talks seemed very uh, negative with respect to uh, various voters, right? So claims like uh, voter perception becomes the reality, our identity and the identity of politicians impacts people's vote choices, we evaluate uh, politicians based on social identity, and then these politicians construct their identities, right? And so it seems like what the totality of you end up claiming is people just don't know what the hell they're voting for. These politicians construct an identity for themselves, and then you, you vote based on those constructed identities, right? So it seems to me that while at the local level it, must, it might be much more difficult to vote based on um, voting record, and uh, recordings and budgets and all of these things, at least at the national level, that becomes much easier. But even at the local level, those things are available to people, right? And so I guess my question is, how do voters become more informed and stop voting based on these social identities and constructed identities and start voting on real things that matter, on people's actual values, right? So obviously when I talk about social identity, it, it does come off very negative. People use these shortcuts to vote. We're worried about efficiency, not accuracy. But there's an argument to be made, and people make it all the time, that you do want to vote for someone who shares your identity. And, and if that's your partisan identity, people may have true, rational, deeply held political beliefs that inform their political identity. And them voting in line with their political identity might not be as irrational as maybe I'm making it sound in this presentation. Um, when we see the Democratic candidates on the stage, maybe, um, and they might not even be constructing their identity, but maybe emphasizing their identity in some way, shape, or form, they may be doing so because that identity impacts their their policy decisions in real and impactful ways. And us voting based on the identity that they're emphasizing may not be that irrational. We have candidates, we have the youngest presidential candidate right now, Pete Buttigieg, right? He emphasizes his age as an important part of his identity. And there's something valuable as a voter saying this person has lived through the same experiences as this other young people in this country, right? He's had Instagram since he was in his 20s. That means something different than maybe a Bernie Sanders who doesn't have that same understanding of what technology is doing to culture and society. So it's not always 
a completely negative thing. I'm not saying it's always positive either, that we use it as a shortcut and that's not great. And if it keeps us from engaging, that's not what we want and that's not good for democracy. But there's often identities that are deeply held and reflect values that are important to us. So it's not always as much of a thoughtless thing as it can be. The optimist in me. <laughs> So, um, and I'm trying to remember, I think it's Lipperman, I think, who came up with um, stereotyping. Um, the fact that people, or that we as voters, that we evaluate candidates um, heuristically using shortcuts doesn't necessarily mean that it's negative. Stereotypes or stereotyping or just wanting to, you know, vote for someone who shares the same identity with you doesn't ne necessarily always have to be negative. It's just a way that we related things is the way we um, engage with things. It's easy for us to do. It's not easy for us to sit down and just bring everything on the table. It's it's an efficient way of um, reaching a decision. And so it's not, it could be negative, it could be positive. Um, and I'm sorry that we all sound it's a negative, you know, but it's, um, I don't think we intended to do that. <laughs> I did not. Um, but it's just a short way. It's very easy, efficient way for us to reach a decision. And the politicians, because they work with researchers, they work with people who, who are like um, psychologists, who are sociologists, who do all of this fun research, they know that this is how we think, this is how we react to things, and so they play on that. So um, in my piece, um, I'd said that one of the ways that we can actually just be better um, at, at evaluating our politicians is to actually spend more time. Like even though it's easy and efficient for us to just look at this person and say, oh, he's black as me, I should vote for him, you know? Um, or his position, he's a single issue politician and that issue matters to me. Why not think more you know, be more deliberate and elaborate in how we process um, whatever these politicians bring to us. And I know that it's it's like I'm putting the burden on the voters, but I mean, just do it, you know? <laughs> it's not easy to do, but... I mean, it's not easy to do, but if we really want to continue to have society that works, you know, that every, I mean, that we don't want to throw stones at each other, then maybe it's the right thing for us to do. And I'll also speak as someone who works um, with um, a journalism and mass communications um, researcher, that we also, as the media we have, and I know there is so much flack, you know, on, <laughs> on the media right now. I don't want to be the scapegoat in this room. But I'll just say that, I'll say that we also have the responsibility to um, ensure that we um, we really give good thoughts to our, uh, to our coverage of, poli of political campaigns, um, reading things on... Um, the impeachment, um, you know, processing and um, proceedings, and I'm like, you know, we really need to do much more. And I mean, yesterday there was this, there was um, a lot of news articles about the transcript, and people were like, this isn't a transcript, this isn't a this isn't a court transcript, you know. So I think that we, as media practitioners, as well, we we have a responsibility to society to ensure that whatever we cover things holistically, and that we are, you know. We take our time. We don't, and I know it's hard in the 24-hour news, you know, culture. It's really hard, but I mean, if we really, really want society to work, we might as well just work hard. 
although I, I would lead with, I did. Hi. Um, I just want to say one good thing about it is that I feel like I get 10 votes at least because everyone I work with, I, I've convinced them to vote the same way I am because, you know, they don't care. And I just I just present one issue that I, I know that they would go for. And so I, I think I've got them all. But my question is, um, do you think we would increase the um, local engagement, I guess, of voters if we switched the voting from odd years to the even year so that it's on the same card as like the president and the governorship. And not just more people turning out to vote, but actually paying attention to what they're voting for. Sorry, I'm bad at following directions. Uh, it used to be local elections were held in April. Uh, and we had uh, in 2015, 13% voter turnout. Uh, then the state switched us to November. This was when they told us they wanted us to be partisan and we fought. The one concession we made to them is we are now a November election like people are accustomed to. And the thinking was, okay, now everyone's gonna be accustomed to voting in November, so now local elections will show up and, and everyone will show up. And we went from, and it, and it sort of worked. We went from 13% turnout in 2015 to I think it was like 17.8% in 2017. That's a quantifiable increase, right? It's still 17%. Like it's still four out of five people don't engage. Simple as that. Um, but it took us from a place where in 2015, I think I received uh, right around 6,000 votes to get in. And now in 2017, it takes like 7,000 votes. You know, we're it's a baby step that moved in November was, was probably a positive thing. The negative side of that, uh, to keep playing my negative card, is that when we used to have elections in April, there was no lame duck period. I was elected on April 7th and I was sworn in on April 14th. There was literally no meeting in between the election and the new commission. Now, November 5th, there will be an election. Uh, I am not seeking a third term, so I am not going to be reelected. And I'm gonna hold a seat for a month where I'm lame duck, right? Uh, and it's because we shifted to, to November election. So that probably will have some negative consequences. There will be as many as three weeks worth of votes that I'll take part in that there is no accountability for my vote, right? And that's a dangerous thing, especially with me. Can I, can I add something? Uh, so I, we don't know if the 
4% increase is due to the change. That's, but the other risk, I think, is that then people might, maybe people even voted uh, in that election more because they had the opportunity, but we don't know if, we don't know if, if that's going to increase their engagement and be more uh, involved in the, uh, in the election and the issues and taking a position. Maybe it's going to be the opposite because we don't know if they're like more focused on the national elections or, you know, and paying attention to that. And they're like, what? I also have to pay attention to the local poll? No, come on. You know, so maybe that's going to. Um, in local elections, let's say like this this year I'm I'm for Courtney, Ken, and Joey. But let's say I think Brad's going to win. Should I be voting for my top two of the three, or should I vote for all three? Election strategy, I love it. Uh, I, I used to tell people this, and they didn't believe me. The single best way to vote in a local election is to not use all your votes. Okay? You get to vote for three, but the reality is we don't run together, right? Every single time you vote for someone that's not me, you are voting against me, right? And so the, if you truly believe in a candidate, uh, it's called bullet voting, which has a really negative connotation, but that's what it's called. Uh, the, the single most effective strategy to vote in a local election is to vote for one person. Um, because you said you support Courtney and Ken and Joey. Well, what's going to happen is you're going to give all three of those a vote. And ultimately, your vote for Ken is a vote against Courtney. And your vote for Courtney is a vote against Joey. And so while you can use up to three, your most strategic play is to vote for one. What we've seen recently is because in, in light of the uh, tomes and, and pounds of misinformation that's on uh, social media, uh, some platforms like Twitter and Facebook have reacted to that uh, by um, what's called deplatforming certain uh, media creators or creators on, on their platforms. Um, I'll see this. I don't know if you've looked at that and, and the sort of the effects that that's had, but it people find that as a troubling uh, reaction, in, uh, especially in light of our commitment to freedom of speech. Uh, so I don't know if you could speak something, uh, speak to something like that or that. Um, did you turn off your? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's it's really problematic. And I, I, the other day, I think uh, two days ago, I heard uh, an interview to the. Uh, um, you know, one of the designers of the uh, news feed on Facebook that now is working on Instagram. And one of the challenges is how not to uh, limit the freedom of speech, but at the same time make the uh, platform uh, like a, a space where people are sure that the information that, the information that they're going to get is, um, is actually accurate, right? Um, there are different, I, th I think from a 
designer perspective, I think that there are different ways in which social media can can solve that particular issue. And it's like, for example, in many online communities, people have like a reputation system where they get like five stars if they are uh, reliable and, and trustworthy. Maybe uh, maybe they can they could adopt one of those like reputation systems strategies to to maybe not limit the uh, the speech. Uh, you know, people can post still post whatever they want, but uh, at least give uh, give uh, like the. Uh, give the users a way to uh, evaluate the uh, trustworthiness of the, of other users um so but yeah it's a it's a very complicated issue because and and i believe that was uh, that's why facebook was so re uh, resistant at looking at you know limiting that uh that type of posts going to point towards to uh, Abby and Shola is that uh, also in this sort of uh, discourse um, online and, and on the media uh, is this distinction between identity politics and something that's not identity politics. Um, from your discussions and from your position pieces, it seems like either it's unavoidable to uh, appeal to identity one could either go that route or go stronger and say that um, that's just how politics is done. It, there's no dis distinction to be made between identity politics and something that's not identity politics. Um, so I was wondering if you could, you two could speak more to, or speak to that kind of, uh, is that distinction uh, a right distinction to make or is it actually not, it doesn't make much sense? So it's a debate, right? And you and you mentioned that there's camps of people who would who would argue either side. I would say that in this period of, of deep polarization and partisanship and how strongly um, those identities are are felt, I would say it's hard to get away from identity politics. So even if someone's maybe not emphasizing their own political identity or their own partisanship, that's at the back of our minds, especially when we get up to the national level. So I would be in the camp that would argue that you can't distinguish between identity politics and non-identity politics, especially in this political world that we're in at the moment. Um, people try and argue that if you're not emphasizing it, it's not there. I would argue that it's always there. Yeah, um, sometimes, like you said, um, people would argue that it's not there, but it is. Like I said in um, my introduction, that like in June, um, one of the Democratic um, candidates, uh, what do you call it, debates, a um, couple of, on the stage, like they had men and women, right? And the men were talking about themselves as parents, as fathers and all of that, and the mother, and the female candidates were like mute about, you know, being mothers and all of that. That in itself is, um, that in itself is um, a choice to not bring that identity to the table. So the, f so the fact that they didn't mention that they were mothers doesn't mean that they weren't mothers, you know? Doesn't mean that that identity of being parents was like, you know, wasn't there for them, but it's just a choice for them not to bring that 
you know, into place. So it was, I mean, it's always there. And so some people would want to vote for those mothers because, oh, she's not even talking about the fact that she's a mother. So that's also an identity. And, you know, people would gravitate towards that as well. The same way that people might have gravitated towards them if they chose to bring it to the table. Well, everyone, it's it's 8:30, um, which means it's um, the end of this event and the end of this. Uh, but it doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, we at Lawrence Talks have a three sort of three facet platform is that so it's events, it's an online blog, and it's a podcast is because we can keep continuing these conversations. We can keep having them and referring back to what. Uh, our panelists said, um, and this also will be posted online on our website as well as uh, probably as a podcast. Um, so I encourage you to uh, go to that site or email me or contact me if there's a uh, something local uh, because the, it's that's why we I I've called it Lawrence Talks and not something more general than that is because I want to keep it locally based. I want to keep uh, our focus locally based. Um, and so if there's any topic or anything that uh, is worth having a conversation about um, that I'm not capturing or that some of our team members are not capturing, um, let me know. Uh, I am just one person. And I, unfortunately, I'm the only driver of the ship. or, or uh, so, um, I, And I can't capture everything uh, due to that. Um, and so I'm very open to any feedback and um, any ideas you may be able to share with me about uh, where, where to go with this. Um, and with that, uh, please join me again in thanking our panelists for, for their uh, ideas and their discussion tonight. Thank you.